And welcome to the 20th episode of the very unofficial AICP Study Guide podcast. I am Jonathan Miller. Thank you guys so much for joining. Hopefully everyone is staying warm during this little cold snap. Uh, Remember though, spring is right around the corner. For your friendly reminder, uh, the review window for the planning experience essays is open until the 23rd, uh, that is, of course, of February, at 3 p.m. So if you intend on submitting the essays, you have a little less than a week, so go ahead and get cracking. Last episode, we talked about the U.S. Reclamation Act and the Public Lands Commission of 1903 and the Inland Waterways Commission of 1907. Basically, it was the Teddy Roosevelt and Progressive Era show. We are going to totally pivot this week to some court cases that were happening at the time. Uh, If you haven't noticed, we are working through these in a more or less chronological format. Now, we haven't needed to cover any legal stuff because, well, there really wasn't much of any at that point, but near the turn of the century, when government starts getting more involved, we start seeing some significant legal challenges. So, strap on your full-bottomed wig and let's get to the cases. So, let's hop in our little time machines back to 1877 and head over to the great state of Kansas, specifically Salina, Kansas. Uh, Peter Mugler, innocent old Pete, wanted to open a brewery. So, Petey went ahead and he obtained a corporate charter from the state and spent 10 grand constructing a brewery. For all intents and purposes, Mr. Muggler here uh, was a legal brewery owner, uh, supplying the city of Salina and maybe beyond, who knows, with uh, some delicious alcoholic brew. Around this time, though, the anti-booze, sorry, temperance movement was gaining some traction. So in 1880, FYI, that is three years after Mr. Muggler built his brewery, Kansas went ahead and amended their state constitution by prohibiting the manufacture of and sale of intoxicating liquors, except for medical, scientific, and mechanical purposes, of course. Uh, I guess they didn't feel like it had enough meat on it, though, because a year later, in 1881, they added another statement which clarified that doing so, or aiding in doing so, would be a misdemeanor with first-time violators subject to a fine of $100 to $500 or imprisonment for 20 to 90 days. This statute in 1880, though, was very problematic for our friend Mr. Muggler, uh, obviously. You see, he had spent a whopping 10 grand building a brewery, and because of the statute and the setup as a brewery, that value had dropped to about 2,500, uh, allegedly, of course. For reference, and I couldn't even find a reliable calculator to tell me how much 10 grand in 1887 would be. Uh, apparently, all of the inflation calculators only go back to 1913, but whatever. To illustrate the point, the rough equivalent would be spending about $264,000 building something, and three years later, it only being worth 66000 So, facing those kinds of losses, it shouldn't be a surprise that Mr. Muggler here decided, screw it, 
I'm gonna keep brewing. And so, in 1881, the authorities indicted our brewmaster buddy on five counts of selling, bartering, or giving away alcoholic beverages without a permit, and also one count of operating a public nuisance, a.k.a. his brewery. The lower courts found Mr. Muggler guilty, and an appeal to the Kansas Supreme Court didn't help much. They ended up affirming the lower court's guilty ruling. So, on to the U.S. Supreme Court it was. But, what were the issues here? Well, there were two arguments made by Mr. Muggler, and his attorneys, obviously. One, under the 14th Amendment, that is the one of, that's one of the due process ones, Kansas didn't actually have the power to prohibit alcohol manufacturing for personal use or for exporting. And two, that the statute amounted to a taking because of the decreased value and Mr. Muggler's brewery essentially being worthless for anything else. So, how did the U.S. Supreme Court respond? By upholding, uh, by an 8-1 to margin, the lower court's ruling. Uh, Mr. Muggler you guilty. So we're left with a question of why. Why didn't Muggler's arguments hold up? Well, one, they determined that the state's legislation to prohibit alcohol manufacturing in its own boundaries actually didn't infringe upon any given right given by the Constitution. And two, that since the statute dealt with the public health, safety, and morals, it fell within the state's police powers. Essentially, since the statute barred one use on the property by a valid legislation, in order to protect the public health, safety, and morals, it cannot be considered a taking, especially when you consider that the statute didn't restrict Mr. Muggler's ability to use the property in a lawful manner. Basically, since the lawful legislation was abating a nuisance, it can't be a taking. So, what is the lasting impact of this case? Well, nothing to do with any of the above. The importance of this case actually lies in the insinuation of Muggler's first argument. Remember, the first argument was that Kansas didn't actually have the power to prohibit alcohol manufacturing for personal use or for exporting. Now, while the U.S. Supreme Court decided that this wasn't true, that Kansas actually did have the power to do that, they came to another realization, that the court actually did have the power to look at the intentions of a state when passing a law. Why? to determine if a regulation is within or related to the state's police powers. Uh, this little snippet from the opinion of the case sums it up nicely in at least semi-understandable legalese. They, meaning the courts, are at liberty indeed under a solemn duty to look at the substance of things whenever they enter upon the inquiry whether the legislature has transcended the limits of its authority. If, therefore, a statute purporting to have been enacted to protect the public health, the public morals, or the public safety has no real or substantial relation to those objects, or is a palpable invasion of rights secured by the fundamental law, it is the duty of the courts so to adjudge and thereby give effect to the Constitution. And that is why Muggler v. Kansas is important.
Now, our other major court case on the docket <laughs> has to do with <laughs> historic preservation. So let's head on over to Pennsylvania and specifically Gettysburg. Uh, first, I want to give a disclaimer. The background here couldn't possibly be more convoluted. So please accept my preemptive apologies if I skim through some of the background. There's like a bajillion organizations, all of which have the word Gettysburg involved. Some are sub-organizations of others, some are public, some are private. And there's literally no good resource that explains any of this uh, clearly. It literally made my head hurt trying to go through it. So now that that's out of the way, let's uh, sort of press forward, I guess. Now before this whole thing played out, visitors to the Gettysburg battlefield traveled around on basically horse-drawn taxis on private roads owned by a private organization, the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association, and from here on out we're just going to refer to them as GBMA. Uh, and at this time they're kind of broke and their roads, which were wagon roads, are not in great condition. This is where uh, the Gettysburg Electric Railway Company enters. Uh, they had incorporated in 1892, and the company was granted a right-of-way by the borough of Gettysburg to use all of the principal streets for a trolley, and construction of that railway began in 1893. Now, while that was going on, the Gettysburg Park Commission was created by the U.S. Department of War, specifically to determine the extent of the trolley. And 25 grand was awarded for the, quote, acquisition and designation of the lines of battle. So the Gettysburg Park Commission started surveying and acquiring property. Here's where it gets all effing weird. The GBMA, I think, denied right of way to the trolley over a critical section think about Pickett's Charge, uh, that is the epic turnaround of the Battle of Gettysburg, just watch the movie Gettysburg. Anyways, GBMA denies the right-of-way to the trolley, so the trolley finds an alternate route. At this point, there's apparently some crazy altercation between people at a monument dedication, and subsequently, GBMA files a complaint and then some citizens who were in favor of the trolley file a counter petition, and then the Pennsylvania district attorney is all like, I'm not getting involved, people can do whatever they want with their property. It was just craziness. So in 1894, GBMA files to block the trolley's use of part of the railway. And at this point, the U.S. Congress says, you know what? We're just going to take some of this land that we think is important, screw you, and your damn trolley. And with that, the U.S. District Attorney, after failing to come up with an agreed-upon price, files to condemn some of the lands that are owned by the Gettysburg Electric Railway Company in order to obtain and preserve it. So, what does the Gettysburg Electric Railway Company do? They file to stop the eminent domain, of course. Uh, and a U.S. Circuit Court judge agreed and said that he could not find a legit reason in the Constitution to permit the U.S. government using the eminent domain power for those purposes. At this point, there's a bunch of back-and-forth mumbo-jumbo stuff in courts, and eventually a jury comes up with a price of 30 grand to be paid to the Gettysburg Electric Railway Company for them uh, having to change their route. 
and still not permitting the U.S. government to take control of the land, by the way. The U.S. Uh, refused, of course, and a second petition was filed, and much to the surprise of no one, that one failed as well. At this point, uh, appeals took the case to the U.S. District Court, who said, you know, preserving the battleground is kind of a public use, so the U.S. actually does have the power to use eminent domain. That ruling was also appealed, of course, because that is how we get to the U.S. Supreme Court after all. But the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed the district court, and they basically said, well, it comes down to how the land is put to use. And the U.S. Congress said that they wanted to preserve the battlefield at Gettysburg, and since that battle was pretty important, logically, it makes sense to preserve it. So it seems like eminent domain is a totally legit use here. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to compensate the owners, so pay up. So what does that all mean? It means the U.S. Supreme Court said preserving historically significant sites does constitute a legitimate use of the eminent domain powers. Well, we have officially broken into the territory of planning law. Oh boy. Uh, to recap, we covered two cases. We had Mugler v. Kansas, which determined that the courts do have the power to overturn laws that don't have a valid public purpose. And we had the U.S. v. Gettysburg Electric Railway Company, and that determined that preserving a historical site is in fact a valid public purpose. I know I said that we would cover the Antiquities Act of 1906, but these two cases ran a little long, so we will double back uh, at one point for those. Just know that uh, the Antiquities Act of 1906 basically allows the president, by proclamation, the ability to create national monuments from federal land and protect certain natural or cultural or scientific features. Oh, and our friend Teddy Roosevelt signed that one into law too. Well, thanks again for joining me. I know case law is not the most exciting thing, but I will do my best here to try and make it a little less intolerable. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at the very unofficial AICP guide at gmail.com and I will do my best to help out if I can. For those who tuned in last week, our question uh, was, what was the purpose of the U.S. Reclamation Act of 1902? That's a bit fuzzier, but we're looking for something along the lines of delegating funds from the sale of public land to fund irrigation projects in the West so that we can make those lands able to be settled. Uh, this basically includes funding the construction of a lot of dams and power plants on the major rivers in the West. If you want to give this week a go, our question is, which one of these cases, Mugler v. Kansas or uh, the U.S. v. Gettysburg Electric Railway Company, had to do with the relationship between laws and police powers? Anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use for podcasts, and feel free to sign up on the show's website so you can follow along with future episodes, help prepare for the exam, and supplement all of your other study regimens. And share this out with any planners you know, and don't forget to leave a review. 
Next week, we are headed over to Chicago for Daniel Burnham's Plan of Chicago and Walter Moody's book, Wacker's Manual of the Plan of Chicago. Thanks again, everyone. Till next time.